Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the 5 Pie, where we have five gamers present you with a veritable flight of short board game reviews. This time we're joined by Meeple Lady bringing us her thoughts on Mexico. Catherine will be exploring Dinosaur Island while Sarah heads into the Amber Mines via the Near and Far expansion. I'll be looking at Spirits of the Wild while Mike takes us back to 1775. It's a great show, so sit back, sample our opinions, and find out if one of these five games would be a good fit for your next game night. Near and Far is a remarkable game, and one that's already been covered on the 5 by. Mason reviewed it in episode 16 just over a year ago. Today I'm going to talk about Near and Far's 2018 expansion, Amber Mines. And yes, this makes the second episode in a row that I'm covering a game that's closely related to a previous review of Mason's. What can I say? I like his taste in games. Like Near and Far, Amber Mines was designed by Ryan Lockett and published by Lockett's company, Red Raven Games. In this review, I won't go into too much detail on the rules of Near and Far, but check out Mason's thorough review from episode 16 if you aren't familiar with the Near and Far base game. Amber Mines adds several new mechanisms in modules so you can pick and choose which to include in each game. Some are simple, like new cards to add to decks, new adventurers, new actions you can take on locations in town. There are also more elaborate modules, like the Amber Mines of the title, which are a deck of cards representing caves that players can explore to place more camps and gain more coins and gems. There's also Magic, a new deck of magic spell cards. The spells tend to be useful boosts, like pay one food to get three swords, that can get you through a quest or threat you couldn't otherwise handle. But spells can only be used once, then you have to spend a turn refreshing them at the Mystic's Hut. By far, my favorite new mechanism in Amber Mines is the addition of cooperative rules. Co-op mode adds two new challenges. First, you have to defeat the four final bosses in every game, so at least one player has to go all in on collecting swords. Second, there's a small board with a track and a counter that advances every round. The further you go on that track, the higher collective score you need to win. It's a timer that adds a wonderful sense of urgency to co-op games. We're doing a two-player co-op campaign, and we often spend the first few rounds hiring adventurers, collecting supplies, preparing to go out adventuring. Which always leads to a moment of alarm when we look at that track and realize how many turns have elapsed and we're still sitting in town. Likewise, at the end of the game, you often have to make difficult decisions like, we can go get that last quest, but it will take three turns, and that tracker is already so high. We're midway through our near and far co-op campaign, and it's starting to feel a bit easy. Luckily, Amber Mines has a module for that. Minions are a co-op-specific module, a deck of cards with negative effects that trigger at predefined spaces on the co-op track. Once drawn, each minion continues to affect players until it is defeated twice and removed. We're planning to add minions to our next game to add another obstacle and up the tension a bit. The co-op mode in Amber Mines resolves my biggest issue with Near and Far. For me, the best part of the game is the thick book full of storytelling scenarios that players reach by questing on a series of maps. The storytelling is so rich and such a big part of the fun that it can be frustrating if one player gets out ahead of the rest and gets a disproportionate share of the questing. Quests are a good way to get resources, which you need to get points, which you need to win the game. In a competitive game, if someone built their strategy around questing as much as possible, you couldn't really say, hey, don't grab all the quests, the rest of us want some too, even though it would kind of ruin the fun if one player got all the quests. But with Amber Mines in co-op mode, players are working together and can agree how to divide up both responsibility for meeting the win conditions and the fun of questing, so everyone gets to experience the storytelling. The stories seem like random encounters at first, but they're not. 
Your quests and the choices you make as you read from that book weave together the world of near and far. It's a place that feels not just real, but lived in. A place with history in its bones. The stories are full of little details that give the characters depth and dimension. There are lizard folk and glogos and lonely robots, and these fantastical creatures have characteristic traits, but still feel like individuals when you meet them in an encounter. In the hands of lesser writers, questing could have been just a mechanism to generate resources with some flavor text. But instead, it's a world unfolding itself for you. Near and Far has an enormous amount of narrative content, and Amber Minds adds more in the form of two new scenarios. These are single games, each with its own quests and its own resolution. Scenarios are perfect for playing Near and Far with friends you can't schedule a full campaign with. These one-off scenarios let you have close to the full Near and Far experience in a single game. I hope Red Raven publishes more content like this. I'd love to have a mini-expansion that was just a book of scenarios. Ryan Lockett's evocative art is a big part of the appeal of every Red Raven game, and Amber Mines does not disappoint. The new components and cards are all lovely, and feature the inclusive character art I've come to expect from Lockett. Near and Far portrays a world where racial and gender diversity is normal, just like the real world. And that's Near and Far Amber Mines, a welcome addition to an already stellar game, and essential for people who like Near and Far and like co-op. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not going through Mason's old reviews to find material for my next episode, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. When Pandasaurus Games first kickstarted Dinosaur Island, my initial response was to figure that this board game was bound to be a disaster. I mean, it seemed that it was clearly ripping off Jurassic Park, and even though I love me some dinos, how is this going to be any good? So, I was delighted to discover that this game by designers Jonathan Gilmore and Brian Lewis mixes solid gameplay and crazy level component quality to create a fairly phenomenal play experience. Opening Dinosaur Island feels like opening one of those boxes of nostalgic candy where they source treats that you haven't seen since childhood. Between the pink chunky dinosaurs, the early 90s flamboyant illustrations, ridiculously heavy coins, the first player snap bracelet, the translucent chunky custom dice. All design choices in Dinosaur Island seem built to give you a sugar headache of Jurassic proportions. Illustrators Quanchai Moria and Peter Walken have proved that they are both unafraid of the color pink, and the result is fabulous. Be warned that some of the components listed above were Kickstarter exclusives, and though the retail version will come with less excessive abundance, it will certainly still delight. I should also mention Quanchai Moria is the penultimate illustrator in my opinion. His painterly style hits all the right notes for me. As a fiber artist married to a painter, I have opinions about the artistic style of many games, and Quanchai's illustrations stand out. In Dinosaur Island, you own a small dinosaur park comprised of one lonely dinosaur and a hat stand, doing business in a time when multiple corporations with fledgling parks are competing for the dino tourist. Researching new species, acquiring dino DNA, building up your parks with rides and attractions, and cloning lots of dinosaurs will help you achieve your goals. Theme in Dinosaur Island abounds from the first moment of around to the last. In Phase 1, you play a mini-worker placement game where your scientists try to be the first to build DNA profiles of species of dinosaurs. Dice drafting to bank different types of DNA required for building those profiles into real dinosaurs, and growing your cold storage of DNA types. Delay snapping up lucrative options, and you will be hobbling yourself later on. In Phase 2, 
You will spend your very limited cash to expand your park with other attractions, hire talented employees, or develop your behind-the-scenes infrastructure to run the park. In Phase 3, you get to place your workers to build bigger dino pens, clone those pesky dinosaurs from recipes you discovered in Phase 1, and deal with the increasing security risks caused by your burgeoning dino family. In the final phase of the round, visitors will come to your park and pay to get in. If there is room for them, you will get victory points, possibly money. If, and this is a big if, you manage to maintain enough security to keep those dinosaurs from eating and or trampling any of your visitors. Some of your visitors are hooligans who actually don't pay to get in, nor do they provide you any victory points, and if your security is lacking, somehow they are always fast enough to evade being eaten. The entire game, you are attempting to be the first to accomplish an array of public scoring opportunities that act as the clock for the game. When all but one of those scoring cards has been fulfilled, the round will finish and a winner will be declared. The points you score for happy patrons helps to create a hierarchy to determine player order for the next round. Fewest points goes first, and first player is a big deal. Players often game the system to remain start player, but what that usually means is letting your T-Rex feed on your paying customers. Do this for too long and you risk not being able to catch up, which is a push-your-luck minigame that is fun. Win or lose. Dinosaur Island has excellent game-to-game variability with short-to-long game length options, myriad buildings and employees in the market to purchase are higher, and a couple plot twists each game that shake things up. I appreciate that one game might favor building lots of dinosaurs, and the next one wants you to bank a significant amount of DNA or collect three attractions of a specific type. I like that two people who accomplish a goal during the same phase of a round both get the goal points, and I also like that accomplishing those goals first doesn't determine the winner of the game, but is only a component of the final score. As someone who isn't a fan of straight worker placement, Dinosaur Island provides an economic envelope that the worker placement components live in, which makes sense thematically and flows very well for a game of this complexity. Turns are fairly simple, lending to a surprisingly snappy game for a beast of this size. I'm surprised at how this game has grown on me. I liked the first play, and each subsequent play has gotten more delightful until it is a borderline obsession now. It is one of the games that gives me giddy joy when I spy it on the shelf, knowing that in that box is a game that delivers an amazing play experience in a package that doubles as a work of art. As a dinosaur enthusiast, it doesn't hurt that this game has Triceratops, one of my favorite dinos. Let me know what your favorite dinosaur is. You can find me at Kyberian on Twitter or Cat Library and BGG, both with a K. Thanks for listening. 1775 Rebellion is a game that I considered for a long time, but never pulled the trigger on. I just really had no justification. That is, until my oldest started studying the revolution in school. And that was really all the pretext I needed, because now it's an educational expense. And while I've only played it once with my oldest, my youngest really enjoys the theme and rolling all the dice, though strategy isn't quite there yet so it was totally worth it. In 1775 Rebellion, you are playing the Continental Army and the Patriots against the British Army and Loyalists. And while I've played where there are multiple people handling each side, I find it works much faster with just two players, as while the rules are clear that the current active player can do whatever they want, in-game negotiation among allies can really slow it down. Because if you and your ally both have units in an area, either one of you can move all or any of them on your turn as part of your movement phase. This is great if you've built up a joint army and one ally has the movement card that'll get them all where they need to go, while the other doesn't, but it's less than ideal when your ally takes your army into battle before you're ready. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
1775 Rebellion, you start with the four armies placed in various spots up and down the colonies from Quebec to Georgia. Each turn you place more reinforcements into cities and colonies where you control, and then play thematic event cards and movement cards while placing and moving the colored cubes on the board. No fancy minis here, though I do enjoy the art in this one quite a bit. It won't win any awards, but it's good and seems pretty period appropriate. Events are few, but emphasize actual events like the French helping during the Siege of Savannah or special troop types for each army. The French help the Americans and the Hessians help the British. For movement and reinforcements, both sides are fairly evenly matched. It really comes down to strategy and dice rolls. The dice are the big difference between the main armies and those of the Loyalists Patriots. The main armies are more likely to hit when rolled, as are the mercenaries, and the non-professionals are more likely to run away. But that's okay because you get to add them back in the next reinforcement phase. The other force on the board are the Native Americans, who join whomever recruits them by moving into their space. The game ends after the third round whenever either or both sides have played both of their truce movement cards, which are the best movement cards really, so it makes for a big final push. Once the game is over, whoever controls the most colonies is the winner. 1775, if you haven't gathered yet, is a top-view strategic simulation of how the revolution may have gone. You aren't in the trenches and the costs are even more extracted as you are literally pushing cubes around the board to represent different armies, and I'm okay with that 1,000-foot view. I want a grand overarching view that even Washington didn't have. I like the thematic touches that the events bring, though if you want it to be even more thematic you can add them in specific orders probably. But I'm a little mixed on the placement rules as if you manage to cut off an opponent to where they don't control any colonies, which is easier for the British to do to the Americans than vice versa, well then they can never reinforce with more armies. I'm also a little mixed on the movement cards as it stinks to not have the movement you need, but I suppose that's sometimes how war logistics works. But overall we've enjoyed 1775 Rebellion and playing out the various scenarios. The base game actually comes with three scenarios, the short game, which is really pretty quick, the regular long game, and then the Siege of Quebec, which is much more like Academy Games' 1812 title, as you can only use the upper half of the map and are fighting for control at the city level instead of the colony level. It is, in my experience, weighted towards the British, but I have found it gives a much more free-for-all feel. PGG also has rules for a more limited southern theater game that follows the same format but for the south. I personally enjoyed that version a little more as it felt a little more balanced to me. I should also mention that there's an iOS version of 1775 Rebellion, and for anyone who's tried their 1812 iOS game, I have found 1775 to be much smoother and easier to use. It also comes with all three in-the-box scenarios, but additionally has an in-app purchase for the Southern Theater that is also good, but the rules are different from what's on BGG. So that's 1775 Rebellion. I think Bo Beckett and Jeff Stahl have given us a pretty good command center view of the Revolutionary War. I feel it works well as a teaching tool to show from a high level what was happening, some of the difficulties the Americans were facing, and maybe some insight into why it took eight long years from start to finish, as it's extremely difficult to knock anyone out. It really is a lot of back and forth. This is a game for the patient. That said, as I'm not really a war gamer, 1775 Rebellion is likely going up until my youngest starts his own turn at the Revolutionary War in school. There's a limit to the scenarios you can try in each game, and frankly, after over a dozen plays of the physical copy and the iOS version, I'm ready for a break. But I did enjoy my plays enough that I'm interested in trying out the newest addition to the series, 1754 Conquest. 
So if you have any further questions about 1775 Rebellion or anything else, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hi everyone, this is Meepa Lady, and this is my first episode on 5 by Games, and I'm very excited to be part of the team. Today I'll be talking about Mexica, a game designed by Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling. It was originally published in 2002 by Ravensburger and Rio Grande Games. Now it's made by Yellow. Mexica is a third game in the Mass Trilogy after Tikal and Java. Mexica is a game for two to four players and plays in about 60 to 90 minutes. It's an action point selection game with area control. What's cool about this game is that unlike many other area controls, you're actually building out the districts on the map. What's excellent about this game is the pyramids. Solid, sturdy, meaty pyramids of varying heights from one to four levels. Super excellent components. It definitely has great table presence and just gorgeous to look at. The game is played out over two periods, which are played out exactly the same way. Players receive their first set of nine pyramids, and the other nine will be available in the second phase. Any pyramids not used in the first period will be added to a player supply for later. Players also receive a Pili Mexica, which is your little meeple. All the Pili Mexicas start at the temple in the center of the board. The entire board is a grid system, and players use their action points to orthogonally move your Pili Mexica meeple, construct canals, build bridges, place pyramids, and found a district. Each player has six action points to spend during their turn and can do any number of these actions based on the various costs of doing them. Before the game starts, you shuffle 15 Kalpuli tokens and randomly select eight of them to use for this first period. The next seven will be used later. Tokens will have the number for a district size and prestige points for a player who founded the district and points for anyone in the district when it's founded. So how do you build districts? On your turn, you can spend one action point to place a canal that's either a single or double square onto the board. Canals can only be placed in open squares and can only touch other canals diagonally at a corner. As gameplay continues, these canals will segment areas of the board. The surrounding lake and the temple in the middle also act as borders for district. When an area is completely closed off by water, a district can be founded. In addition, your meeple must be sitting inside the district on a square to found a district. When you found a district, which costs zero action points, take an available token that exactly matches the district size and place it on an empty space inside the district. Once this is set, the token can never be removed from the place and the district cannot be broken up on future turns. You then receive the amount of prestige points on the token, and if anyone else happens to be inside your district, they receive the smaller secondary number. Players can also score prestige points at the end of the period by building pyramids to establish majority. The number of action points to spend to build is equal to the level of the pyramid you're placing on the board, one for the one level, two for the two level, etc. To build your temple, your Pili Mexica must be inside the district you're placing it in. At the beginning of the game, before any districts are founded, it's much easier to do this, but you run the risk of your pyramid not being inside a high-value district. Once districts start filling up the board, then you'll have to become more strategic in how you move your meeple and put down temples. Once a temple has been placed on the board, it cannot be removed or upgraded. I like how the pyramids have pips on the top of each of them, so you're not spending your entire time counting each level. It's not the number of pyramids that determine majority. It's the number of pips, which represent the total temple levels. Another way to get around the board is building canals. Canals enable meeples to enter a district that has already been segmented off. Canals also allow your meeple to travel via an imaginary boat down canals. 
You're basically bridge hopping and spending action points to do that. The lake also counts as a body of water when you do this action. There's also one last action to collect action point tokens, which give you extra actions for a future turn. The first period of the game ends when all eight Kalpuli tokens are placed on the board, or when one player places all nine of their temples. Scoring happens again for every district founded. Determine which players have the most, second most, and third most majority in that district, and prestige points are handed out based on the Kalpuli tokens in that district. Everything on the board stays on the board. The rest of the Kalpuli tokens are revealed, everyone gets nine more pyramids, and the game continues just like the first half. On the cover of the rulebook, there's a subtitle that calls Mexica, a game of placement, blocking, and majority. In other words, this game can be all kinds of mean. Meeples cannot pass through each other, so you can completely block a person from exiting or entering a district. That person then has to spend five action points to magically teleport to any location on the map, which, when a person only has six action points per turn, is a pretty hefty cost. For people who don't like games that can be mean, Mexica might not be for you. Also, having six action points to choose from can also bring out AP in some players. The person with the most prestige points at the end of the game is the winner. Mexica also has a 2P variant that allows you to place number of neutral temples across the board to act as competition when scoring majorities. And that's Mexica. This has been Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Meeple Lady, and on my website, boardgamemeeplelady.com. Thanks for listening! Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, talking about a game published by Mattel and readily available on the shelves of local Target stores here in the U.S. Not exactly the pedigree many expect to result in a great hobby game, but the selection of mass market retailers has been improving by the second, and what we have here is a beautifully produced two-player abstract that won't break the bank. That game is Spirits of the Wild, designed by Nick Hayes and released in 2018 with gorgeous art from Sid Wheeler. Playing in just 15 to 30 minutes, Spirits has players trying to make offerings of colored stones to honor animal spirits. Each animal accepts a different combination of stones, be they pairs, collections of different colors, or all the same. But as each player attempts to provide these offerings, they'll find themselves running up against both their opponent and the trickster coyote. The former trying to outdo their gifts, while the latter attempts to stop anyone giving gifts at all, since after all, nobody's honoring coyote. But since the trickster can only get in the way of one offering at a time, carefully manipulating him to get in your opponent's way can be key to taking the lead. Each player has an identical set of action cards, which they'll flip over after using, limiting their options for the next turn. These cards let players take stones from the available pole, draw stones from the bag to add to that pole, or move the coyote figure. Each player has two cards that offer the relatively weak take one stone action, but once both of these are flipped over, together the backs make an image of coyote, signifying the player can now move the trickster to their opponent's board. I love how this adds value to the lesser action cards if both are used, and since the regular coyote action only involves adding stones to the supply and not to your player board, it gives you a second option for moving the trickster that might actually better fit your current needs. Once at least three of a player's cards have been used, their final card is now viable. This card lets them use an available spirit power from the two on display, and then turn all of their cards back to the active side. I enjoy games that make you decide when to refresh your actions and Spirits does so in a way that lets you use a powerful ability at the same time instead of giving up a turn to reset. 
The game plays with the idea of pushing your luck in a couple of ways. There's the rush to use a good spirit card before your opponent, versus waiting out your opponent's reset in the hope they reveal a better one. There's the tension between adding more stones to the pull for your opponent, versus grabbing a color you need less but that you know is there. And then there's the fact that adding stones to the pull can actually end the game. You see, Spirits of the Wild is over at the end of a player turn when five translucent spirit stones are out of the bag. More than once I've gone to pull colored stones to earn points and instead push the game towards the end. And on one occasion, I pulled nothing but spirit stones, losing the game dramatically. But since the game can be so fast, such a spectacularly bad draw doesn't upset me as much as it would in a longer game. Instead, it just left me ready to reset for a second attempt at victory. And since spirit stones also have value, because they double the points earned by an offering, having to take one isn't necessarily a bad thing. You just hope it comes at the right time, not when you desperately need a purple stone to come out of the bag. Spirits is a fantastic little back-and-forth game, and the production of the whole thing is simply excellent. The player boards are well laid out, with helpfully situated holes so the stones don't move around. This feature is made even nicer by the fact that, since the game is mass market, everything is ready to go when you open the box, no punching required. The art and design is very appealing, from the beautiful spirit depictions to the angular coyote piece and faceted stones, both of which just encourage people to pick them up. The game even comes with a shallow bowl to hold the pool of available stones, and everything fits into a well-designed insert for easy storage, which makes the price point of around $15 more than worth it. The cards are a little thin, but you can sleep them if you prefer. But all that being said, there are a few production decisions that can cause issues for players. The white and yellow colored stones have been tricky to tell apart in poor lighting, and a couple of the stone colors were hard for a colorblind friend to distinguish. In addition, the contrast in the player boards is low, causing a few issues reading each animal's requirements, again when lighting wasn't great. So be warned about that. Spirits of the Wild has both beauty and substance. Like other great two-player games, doing well involves reading your opponent and tripping them up where possible. It's a delicious back-and-forth set collection game, where victory comes from assessing the boards and knowing when to take the risk, playing the odds and hoping luck is on your side. If you're someone who plays two-player games, then I highly recommend checking it out. And with its short playtime, it's a great option for the start of game night when you're waiting for more people to show up. So until next time, you can find me bargaining with the trickster and find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Five By, the all stuff, no fluff, and just long enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 By, thanks for listening. The 5 By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.